As we prepare to hear God's word read and proclaimed, let us pray. Gracious God, the scriptures tell us that we cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from you. Speak this word into our lives this day. Shake us from our complacency. Encourage us as we seek to trust and follow you. Amen. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Once while Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret and a crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he saw two boats there at the shore of the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little way from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for the catch. Simon answered, Master, we have worked all night long but have caught nothing. Yet, if you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For he and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Then Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching people. When they had brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amy Valdez Barker is a Methodist minister and a church consultant who spends a lot of time thinking about trust. She's written a book for churches about trust. She's worked on a project exploring the interplay between trust and trauma. All of this reflection on trust means she often finds herself surprised by how easily, she writes, people seem to trust what their little pocket handheld computers tell them more than a person sitting across the table from them. Who or what do you trust? What criteria do you use to determine whether something or someone is trustworthy? And what do you do when you discover your trust was unfounded or misplaced. This year during Lent, we're exploring stories from the Gospel of Luke to help us consider what's love got to do with it. Today's story invites us to think about what love has to do with trust. Luke's version of the call of the first disciples is not like the call stories in the other Gospels. In those accounts, Jesus calls people who know little to nothing about him. He pretty much walks past them, says, follow me, and they do. But Luke describes something different. 
Here, Jesus has kicked off his public ministry. He is taught at the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth, where he announces that God has anointed him to bring good news to the poor, proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, and to let the oppressed go free. Then he travels to Capernaum, where he does more teaching, exercises demons, and heals Simon's mother-in-law from a fever. Jesus has been busy doing what he came to do, so by the time he commandeers Simon's boat to go out on the water to teach the crowds, Simon already knows something about Jesus. He's seen him in action. And yet, when Jesus tries to give Simon advice about fishing, Simon's livelihood, which he's been doing most of his life, Simon hesitates. Who is Jesus, a teacher and healer, to give him advice about fishing? Last Sunday night, nearly 124 million Americans watched the Super Bowl, making it the most watched broadcast since the 1969 moon landing. Now, there were a lot of reasons for this. The music, the commercials, Taylor Swift, the halftime show. Oh, and there was a football game between the Chiefs and the 49ers. Taylor Swift won. (laughs) So in one of those commercials, all those millions of people saw an ad that featured images of one person having their feet washed by another. But the pairings were not what we might expect. An oil rig worker washing the feet of a climate activist, a police officer washing the feet of a young black man, a white woman washing the feet of a migrant, an older woman washing the feet of a young woman outside an abortion clinic. At the end of the commercial, these words appear on the screen. Jesus didn't teach hate. He washed feet. When my family and I saw the commercial in real time, our response was, huh, interesting. We appreciated the attempts to imagine Jesus' actions, what they might look like in our time, and the focus on loving and serving others. The next day, I found myself thinking about the commercial again, and so I googled foot-washing Super Bowl commercial, and the top two hits were two headlines. From Fox News, Super Bowl foot-washing Christianity ad faces attacks from the left. And from Newsweek, Christian Super Bowl commercial outrages conservatives. Apparently, in about as much time as it took to air that one-minute commercial, people jumped to their corners, armed with suspicion and mistrust. The left didn't trust the ad because it was funded in part by companies supporting conservative Christian legal causes. The right didn't trust it because it seemed to imply that Jesus endorses behavior they deem sinful. And lots of other people across the political and religious spectrum questioned whether a $7 million ad buy was an appropriate way for a Christian organization to spend money. But as David French pointed out in an editorial a few days later, What if all of this criticism is a way for Christians to avoid a much harder question? 
the question of whether we're willing to trust Jesus enough to follow him where he leads us. Because as we see in today's scripture, Jesus is almost always leading us away from where we feel comfortable and competent and certain and toward deep water and wilderness and people we would rather not associate with. Lent is modeled after Jesus' 40 days of fasting and temptation in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry. And like it was for Jesus, this season is meant to be for us a time that reorients us toward God, to help us remember that even as our achievements and possessions, addictions and obsessions demand our attention and allegiance, God calls us to a life of service and sacrifice that may feel deeply unsettling, but which leads to the kind of abundance Peter and his colleagues experience when they put their nets in the deep water. The question for this deep water wilderness season is, do we trust Jesus enough to set aside our knee-jerk reactions, snap judgments, and internal resistance to move toward people and places we've decided are not worth our time or attention, and not just move toward them, but love them by serving them? Do we trust Jesus enough to cast our nets in the deep water? That Super Bowl ad made so many people across the spectrum angry because most people quickly fixated on whether they could trust the messenger or the message. The left fixated on whether they could trust a corporation with views they found abhorrent. The right resisted trusting a message of grace toward unrepentant sinners. And lots of others struggled to trust a Christian organization that was, in their eyes, wasteful with its money. Look, none of this is wrong, but that anger comes from a lack of trust in people. And the gospel does not invite us to trust people. The gospel invites us to trust Jesus. We go to the deep water because that's where Jesus tells us to go. And to love Jesus means to trust him. Jesus sends us to fish for people not because people are trustworthy and not because we are trustworthy. Jesus sends us because going beyond our comfort and conditioning to love and serve others, even to wash their stinking, sinful feet, is exactly the sacrificial servant love Jesus offers us. And it's the only kind of love that will truly transform us. We can't love without trust. But when we trust Jesus, we can love all people. 
As I mentioned earlier, RISC is preparing for our annual Nehemiah action, and that means in a few weeks, most of you will get a phone call, or someone will pull you aside after worship to have a conversation with you, inviting you to attend. It is understandable if your first reaction is to say, no thanks, I'm too busy. Those issues don't affect me, it's too political. But as a Lenten practice of trust and love, I encourage you to resist that initial response and listen to the person extending the invitation. Maybe even ask them why they're involved in risk and what it means to them. That is one way to put down your nets in the deep water, to move toward something or someone you don't understand, and to do it with love and trust in the God who calls you there. In that op-ed about the Super Bowl commercial, David French refers to a story the evangelical leader Tony Campolo tells about an encounter he had working late one night when he stumbled into an all-night diner in Hawaii. Campolo tells the story this way, I went in, took a seat on one of the stools at the counter, and waited to be served. This was one of those sleazy places that deserves the name Greasy Spoon. The guy behind the counter, Harry, came over and asked me, what do you want? I said, a cup of coffee and a donut. He poured a cup of coffee, wiped his grimy hand on his smudged apron, and grabbed a donut off the shelf behind him. The door of the diner suddenly swung open, and to my discomfort, in marked eight or nine provocative and boisterous prostitutes. It was a small place, and they sat on either side of me. Their talk was loud and crude. I was just about to make my getaway when I overheard the woman beside me say, Tomorrow's my birthday. I'm going to be 39. Her friend responded in a nasty tone, So what do you want from me? A birthday party? Come on, the woman replied. Why do you have to be so mean? I was just telling you, that's all. I mean, I've never had a birthday party in my whole life. Why should I have one now? When I heard that, Campola writes, I made a decision. I waited until the women had left. Then I called the guy, Harry, over, and I asked him, do they come in here every night? Yeah. The one right next to me, does she come in here every night? Yeah, he said, that's Agnes. Why? Because I heard her say tomorrow's her birthday. What do you say you and I do something about that? What do you think about us throwing a birthday party for her right here tomorrow night? Harry answered, that's great. I like it. Great idea. Calling his wife in the back room, he shouted, hey, come here. This guy's got a great idea. He wants us to go in with him and throw a birthday party for Agnes tomorrow night. His wife said, that's wonderful. Agnes is one of those people who's really nice and kind, and nobody ever does anything nice for her. At 2.30 the next morning, I was back at the diner with some crepe paper decorations and a sign that read, Happy Birthday, Agnes. By 3.15, it seemed every prostitute in Honolulu was in the place. At 3.30 on the dot, the door of the diner swung open, and in came Agnes and her friend. When they came in, we all screamed, Happy Birthday! Never have I seen a person so flabbergasted, so stunned, so shaken. 
Her mouth fell open. Her legs seemed to buckle. Her friend grabbed her arm to steady her. We all sang happy birthday, and as we came to the end, her eyes moistened. Then when the birthday cake with all the candles was carried out, she lost it and just openly cried. Without taking her eyes off the cake, she said, Is it all right with you if I... I mean, is it okay if I... What I want to ask you is, is it okay if I keep the cake a little while? Is it all right if we don't eat it right away? Harry shrugged and said, sure, that's okay. If you want to keep the cake, keep the cake. Take it home if you want to. Can I? She said. Then looking at me, she said, I just live a couple doors down. I want to take the cake home, okay? I'll be right back. Honest. She picked up the cake and carrying it like it was the holy grail, she walked out the door. When the door closed, there was a stunned silence. Not knowing what else to do, I broke the silence by saying, what do you say we pray? Looking back on it now, it seems more than strange for a sociologist to be leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner in Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning. But then it felt just like the right thing to do. I prayed for Agnes. I prayed for her salvation. I prayed that her life would be changed and that God would be good to her. When I finished, Harry leaned over the counter and said, what kind of church do you belong to? In one of those moments when just the right words came, I answered, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> Harry waited a moment and then said, No, you don't. There's no church like that. If there was, I'd join it. I'd join a church like that. That is a church that fishes in deep water. Wouldn't we all like to join a church like that? Wouldn't we like to be a church like that? Me too. So let's trust the one who calls us. Let's trust his love. And let's go fishing. Amen.